Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, medieval historian Valerie Garver joins me to talk about Bran's third POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. Then, after my conversation with Val, I include a short excerpt of my conversation with my friend Podrick McCarran. Just a quick note. The last few weeks, we've been talking about a possible fantasy fantasy league related to House of the Dragon with various podcasters. It is still my plan to make that happen, although with the writer's strike that's going on right now, we don't really know when season two of House of the Dragon will come out. So until we know that information, I'm going to go ahead and put the pause button on that because we don't want to do it too far ahead of season two of House of the Dragon. Luckily for this podcast, we have book content to cover, which, in my opinion, is evergreen. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Val Garver. Val, I think what I'd like to do is just jump right into my synopsis of this brand chapter. And um, at the Harvest Feast, Bran performs the functions of the Lord of Winterfell. He sends various savory dishes to those of the Great Hall, but sends the Walders only beets and turnips. He observes the people of the North as they sing and shout and dance and grope each other. After experiencing a wolfish daydream, Bran greets a young lady and lord of the Cranagmen. Bran leaves when the dancing begins and dreams that he is a direwolf in the godswood. Then the two Cranagmen enter and approach. When touched by the boy, Bran dreams he is falling again. So, uh, Val Garver, the floor is yours. What did this chapter do for you? Well, rereading it, I was really struck by especially Lady Hornwood and her situation. Um, But it also made me think about how much work this chapter does to kind of uh, presage what's coming. (laughs) Right. Um, Yes. And. It just feels like a chapter that's really rich in that, uh, but yet it is pretty effective as a kind of um, internal, you know, internal to Braun, um, internal sort of narration of what's going on and a kind of internal consideration of his lot in life um, that also, I think, suggests like another possible universe, like another possible path that he ends up not taking, but that he could have ended Interesting. up Interesting. Let's talk about yeah. Lady Hornwood first, but I'm I'm fascinated by this all this alternative reality that you <laughs> you're mentioning. Um <laughs> so I was I did not remember the Lady Hornwood detail at all. It seemed as if in a previous chapter, it seemed as if Lady Hornwood is is a widow. The suggestion is to try to marry her off, and she's not interested in remarrying. But she tells Roderick, unless it's you, sir, or something like that, unless unless you have interest. In other words, mm-hmm. she kind of like hints that she might be a, a little bit attracted to Roderick. Um, in this chapter, Roderick decides I'm gonna I'm gonna make a move here. I'm gonna ask her to dance, and 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 then she she leaves. So I'm curious how what do you, how are you reading Lady Hornwood's situation here? So I think she is a very minor character who stood out really starkly to me even the first time I read the book and I think it's because I work on medieval women and I really saw in this character an extreme form of the kind of pressure that I think a lot of aristocratic women mm. could have come under 
And that is, um, and we have these individuals historically, we have evidence of them over most of the centuries and places in the Middle Ages of women who are widowed, but they are in a precarious situation and they're dependent on finding a man or someone to kind of support them. So this is one theory about medieval widows. One, I mean, I should say medieval widows had a lot more latitude for making their own decisions. They had probably more agency than most other women because mm. it leaves them with wealth and a kind of independence for the most part. Yeah, yeah. But it can also leave them in a bad situation, just like Lady Hornwood here, who she doesn't have a son now and her husband has died and she's kind of on her own and people all want her land. Mm. And so she's really in a very difficult position, but it's interesting. Cause I feel like you see in her like this agency that widows have where she's making decisions about who she will or won't marry, but also a kind of like resignation that her lot is a really bad one mm. and that she's really kind of got a hope for the best. And I feel like one thing I really noticed um, like a detail that stood out to me this time was that, they they make a note. Um, I, I can't remember if it's Roderick or Braun or um, if it's not even said who's making the note, but that she only shows up, I believe, with six men at arms. And it's clear that this is strange to people, that this is shows kind of a it's a sign of her weakness mm. that most of the men from her court are away. And, and Braun makes a number of allusions throughout the chapter, right, that so many people have left and there's new men and it's changed like who the men around are. And so it, uh, to my mind, it like even more increasingly made it feel like she's in some kind of imminent danger and that she's having trouble figuring things out. And I thought this thing with Roderick was really fascinating because it was almost like, I don't know, like a little insight to maybe he was like a kind of desirable partner back in the day, but that he retains a kind of um, desirability. But even he says, well, there's no point, right? Am I marrying her? Because it just, as soon as I die, the whole thing's going to start over again. So he sees a kind of futility in it. Um, and I almost, the way I read him asking her to dance was that he felt sorry for her. So I guess I had a different reading of it than you did. Oh, got it. I, and I think that that's why she leaves. Like, my feeling is she's like, okay, he's already rejected my suggestion that he marry me. And now he's just like mm, pitying mm. me and dancing with me. So I'm out of here. Um, and so my read of her at the feast is she's just like, I came here hoping to kind of resolve my problems more, but I, she doesn't feel like they're being resolved. Um, although I also look at her and I think, well, you know, you like, I think she had options. Like instead of just going back, she, to her own, um, her own house, she could have maybe like called on the Manderleys and gone back with them. Although I suppose then she thinks the risk is right. they're going to make her marry one of them. <laughs> I mean, she's really in a really rough position, um, and then the reason that she always stuck in my mind is her horrifying end in a future chapter. It's just like the worst possible outcome. And that to me, I mean, I was thinking, well, is there a parallel to this? There's a, but I mean, it's so extreme, right? How yeah. she dies. Uh, but, you know, I think that there are definitely cases where women ended up having to marry people they did not want to marry. Right. And they get bad ends as a result. And so in this sense, I found her a really fascinating minor character because it felt very kind of like real to me. Like it felt like something like, yeah, that historically I could see someone being in having those same difficulties, those same difficult decisions that like she's faced with. And I feel like it's, it's a good minor character because you really sort of get, in, at least I did, I got invested in her, right? <laughs> even though she doesn't get a lot of space really in the series. 
Um, no. But she stood out to me. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. All right, so the first century, there's a woman named Babatha. And the only reason we know about Babatha is because we found uh, like a, a leather satchel. Wow. And it's, you know, it's basically, it's got, you know, legal documents in it. And Babatha is a widow, and she is, uh, she has the claim on several orchards, right? So she owns these orchards. This is in mm-hmm. ancient Near East. So mm-hmm. she's got the, a claim on this, and she, so she's in a dispute with, you know, an uncle or something over these things. And she has a legal claim to these uh, lands, and she's been successful. And so she kind of has autonomy to do what she wants, and what she decides to do is marry this boy. Uh, you know, he's you know he's barely come of age. Um, you know, he he's I think he's like. 17 or 18 or something like that. He might be as young as 16. Mm-hmm. Rather than marrying an, an you know an older and more wealthy man and you know who's just basically going to take these orchards away from her and take her autonomy away from her. Um yeah. so I th- I thought it was interesting like it's here's an example of, of a much more ancient situation but a woman who has decided to marry in such a way that she can kind of keep her wealth. I, I thought it was interesting in that Lady Hornwood decides, yeah, I, I could marry a Manderley if I wanted to. And that, that actually, you know, but of course all my lands are going to become Manderley lands if I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, anyway, I, I thought that was an interesting parallel there. Yeah, I agree. In retrospect, it's kind of hard to know what Roderick's intentions are. Yes, I think that's true. You know, maybe he's been ruminating on this a bit. Maybe he's been thinking, well, I don't know. Uh, and maybe he gets a few drinks in him and he decides, <laughs> I, I think I'll see what dancing with her feels like. I don't know. I don't know what, what's, what is his situation. Or in retrospect, maybe she thinks better of it. Maybe she thinks, ah, it's, it was a moment of, of fancy when I suggested this to Roderick. Uh, I, I've thought better of it. And, and maybe her grief creeps up on her or something. Maybe she leaves the dance hall because she's she's mourning the loss of her husband again. Yeah. I think that's all possible. I, I mean, I think in this sense it's it's a well written um interaction between the two characters because uh-huh. it's not hundred percent clear, right? We can come to different conclusions about it. Um, right. Which I think right. is a is a good thing in a book if you have that kind of ambiguity. Because it's a lot more like life, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about Bran. I, I'm curious to hear about sort of your read of the the varying possibilities that he's faced with in this chapter. Yeah. So I guess what I mean by that, I feel like you can see kind of an alternative route for him, like a different possible past for him is that he's acting as a Lord and he's really good at it. Yeah. And people are really recognizing, like he's getting quite a bit of praise from people for his clever moves. And you see that he's like, quite canny very smart in what he does like i like that you mentioned about sending the phrase the turnips and the beats <laughs> <laughs> like the least interesting especially turnips which i mean turnip yeah. I, definitely i think in the middle ages uh, almost everyone ate them in the middle ages um especially in the absence of potatoes um so it's like the classic thing we teach students right is the new world brings you potatoes and you don't have to eat the turnips anymore yay uh-huh. um so i like that they get the turnips um and, you know, but it's a smart move. Like he's showing them favor because he sent a dish, but mm. it's not a very nice dish. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, that's a clever move. Like he thought that through. I also like that they kind of make these allusions to how he's remembering his past. Like he remembers his father using the yeah. same cup and he remembers his father saying things and then he thinks, oh gosh, I really wish I'd asked him, especially about the, oh my gosh, I got to remember the name. The oh, Cranham. Howland Reed. Alan Reed, that's it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. He really wants to know more about that. And that is like obviously that's really essential to don't we all wish someone had asked him earlier about that. Uh-huh. Um, but in a sense, it kind of shows like, okay, Brand's been like paying attention to this for so long mm-hmm. that he uh knows like he kind of knows what maybe his father would have done, or he's been paying attention, so he has a really good idea of how to be a lord. And that shows something about his character, obviously, is he's really observant. Mm-hmm. And you see that in the chapter where he's observing everything, but you kind of get the sense, well, that would make him a really good Lord. And you see him kind of overcome um, any kind of, um, you know, kind of perception that he's weak because of his uh, disability. He kind of overcomes that right by riding on the horse. And like, it just mm-hmm. it's almost like it doesn't matter. It's a, kind of like a, like a little bit of a triumphant moment for him. And I feel like when you read that, you kind of think, okay, this is a way where he has a moment to think, what would it be like to be the Lord of Winterfell? Mm-hmm. And to realize that, you know, if Rob Stark dies, he would be Lord of Winterfell, right? And so you see this other kind of road for him where he ends up being the Lord of Winterfell, 
which is, I think, not beyond the, you know, the realm of imagination for the characters at this point that that could happen, right? Rob is in imminent danger mm-hmm. and um, he might have to take over. Um, although, of course, he does have his wolf dream, which, I mean, you, you can kind of see it's like not going to happen. But I like this kind of um, the way the chapter kind of alludes to other possible paths that that Bran could have been on, right? That he could have been following in yeah. his life. Um, I think and you're his right. kind of his recollection too. He's so sad that he isn't a knight. Like I think that comes up a lot in Clash of Kings, but right. here it's like he's. It's sort of like he's sort of mourning the past, and yet also really much, very much benefiting from his ruminations on the past because it's yeah. helping him know what to do. Absolutely, and actually, when you know when Mira and Jojen come in for the first time, he's intrigued by them. He thinks I'd yes. like. I, I wish I knew more about the Kranich men. I've never actually seen them before. The voices around him are telling him to dismiss them. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they're not wearing the the clothing that he would expect a lord and a lady to wear, and the Walders are you know calling them frog eaters or whatever, and uh, or mud men, and he's not taking that advice. He's ma- he's making his own decisions. He's he's decided I'm going to be, uh, I'm I'm going to be lordly here. I'm going to, you know, say the words. You know, he kind of. You know, struggles with it. What, what words am I supposed to say? They're they're using a vow I've never heard before. Mm, I'll just say the I'll I'll say what sounds what what I think sounds like it would be a, a good thing to say right now. Uh huh. And he acquits himself pretty well. You know, he, he does. Yeah. He doesn't take he doesn't take the childish advice from the phrase. He's not too put off by their odd clothing he's not too put off by the odd vow he just kind of thinks on his feet and uh and does well enough not you know people are noticing that he's doing pretty well in that seat yeah and i also would say add to everything you've said it's really striking that it's mira who is armed yeah right and jojen is not and this is would be quite unusual in their world but it doesn't really seem to affect brian he he doesn't seem to blink an eye about this he's yes. more like oh this is interesting you know and he wants to know more and i know there are examples of women in the north who were armed and went into battle so i mean it wouldn't be like it was unheard of but it would make her look unusual but i think even more unusual is jojen not being armed right being under the protection of a woman i mean that's like so yeah. different right than this world to see that uh-huh I want to talk a little bit about that. So um, she's armed with a bronze knife, I I think. Mm -hmm. And a net, right? And a net. That's right. And I think that this is meant to, I guess, harken back to an earlier culture. You know, sort of like I I was doing a little bit of reading on sort of the the Scottish and the Irish Cranags. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the people that would, you know, use these kind of structures in the Iron Age mm-hmm. um, and sort of this, I don't know, the, every now and again, you'll see a little hint that the Kranig people are a much, much older culture uh, in, in terms of the, like the, the kinds of houses that they live in, the kind of tools that they're using the kind of weapons that they're holding. And I'm wondering if um, if the women have a different, uh, I guess, place in 
the hierarchy of this particular clan because it is a much older kind of society. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought. The thing I have to say about the Kranigmen is that I've always been pretty curious, like, what were they like at home? Because <laughs> we don't get an insight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're more or less getting um, from the other characters their perceptions of this culture. Uh, and so it's hard to know, like, what would it be like at home? But And one has a sense that, okay, so Mira can do this, so maybe it's just perfectly acceptable. But we also don't know if maybe that's also exceptional in their uh, culture, right? That maybe she's some form of exception. Right. Uh, it's, yeah, I find it really hard to say. Um, but I think like, it's a really kind of fascinating culture. And, you know, I liked how it suggests something about, you know, the, um, this motif of like the green man, if, uh -huh. you, know, you know, this from the middle ages. Um, it's a kind of like character that, lives with nature and is green you know these mentions of green teeth for example really remind me of this but i think the character people might know is um uh, gawain and the green knight um that's a, right. a famous poem with a with a with a green man um but they show up in a lot of literature they show up in art um and you know there's literary scholars who've done some really interesting studies of them you know and the kind of maybe the folklore basis for these but i like that they that Martin, when he's writing this, he's like kind of drawing on that old idea as well. And then also, yeah, it does to me, the weapons also feel older, like it's an older, yes. much older culture. And they allude to that, like basically like the reeds are like, yeah, we've been around much longer. We're connected to, um, you know, the children of the forest and we go way, way, way back. Um, and in a sense, like, even though the world of, the Starks, you know, the world of the North looks down on them and uh, presumably other, other of the seven kingdoms look down on them too. They are very proud. Mm. They, they're not buying it. They're like, mm -hmm. no, we are special. Um, and it's almost like they don't quite care, but that does also yeah. make it still like, I think Howland Reed is like this completely fascinating character who does not appear <laughs> because you think, why, why is he so loyal to Ned Stark? Like what, Yes. What is going on there? Like, that's a, a totally fascinating kind of well, part of it. And I, I think at one point, Mira says, We swore fealty to the kings of winter long before, you know, centuries ago, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing about the Kranigman is that they're very secretive, right? Yes. Yes. You get the sense that they're sort of like, they're in the marsh, you know, they live in marshland and they. They eat off of the marshes, right? Mm -hmm. They eat lizards, they eat frogs, they eat, you know, all kinds of fowl. In other words, they eat what they can catch on their land. They're not into yes. trading. They don't need anyone else. They're self-sufficient. No, and they're not greedy. I think this is the other thing is they have a kind of virtue. So in a way, you can compare them to um, the Greyjoys as like a kind of counterpart to the Reeds. And... The the Greyjoys are like, you know, we don't engage in agriculture. Like, we're not going to, you know, break the ground. You know, we do not sow, I think, is their household right, motto. Right, right. Yeah, sure, um, sure. At, but they're really greedy. They're kind of greedy. They're like, okay, so in theory, they could be a kind of more virtuous house. And they could live off of the fish around them. And they could live uh, off their land. And they could reject wearing, like, gold and silver for those reasons. But instead, they're like, no, we're going to go raid all the people around us. Right. And they come across as like a kind of wicked counterpart, I'd say, to the reeds, where the reeds seem to say like, 
we are so proud of our old origins and we are good people and we take care of ourselves and they may be secretive, but they're not bothering anyone else. Mm -hmm. They don't raid, they don't do anything. And one imagines like if they're that good at hiding and they're that secretive, they could get up to no good, right? That's always been my sense. They could have done that, Mm -hmm. but they don't. They don't. They choose not to. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think it's very striking that they're all quite um, small. They're described as being smaller than other people which I also think is uh, kind of fascinating. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons why Martin chose to do that. Um, I mean, I think it kind of relates them maybe a little bit to like like fairies or something mm-hmm. in the forest, right? There's like a kind of hint of that, that by their being smaller. But I also think it sort of says something about their place in the world. They're not going to take up a lot of space in the world. They're content to be small and to stay where they are. And I think there's a kind of... Um, you know, I keep using the word virtue, but it's basically this idea like of doing what is good. I mean, that's been, that's a big question, I think, in most human cultures, but they seem to do good, right? Although we don't know, right? Because we don't know what Helen Reed did. Can you, <laughs> Just stark, so, can you yeah. fill me in a little bit on the, the sort of the mythology around the green man? I mean, I could try. I am not an expert on this. You can, you can definitely get literary experts who are going to know a lot more than I do. But it's a, it's an old motif. Um, I know there's been really quite good studies of it in England. Um, and this may be something that like helps explain how Martin kind of drew upon it is because it was a pretty popular motif, both in literature and art around the time of the Wars of the Roses. Mm. And so, uh, but it was, but it was older than that. And there's some sense that it's based in a kind of older folklore. Uh, but I mean, that's a hard thing to measure. Um but literary specialists, I think, would say that it has it must have a kind of old origin. It's part of an older story hmm. that's existed a long time. Um, and these uh, green men are sort of like these magical creatures who are human-like but are not fully human. So um, I know it's one of those things like to to say more about it, I would probably have to like read a little bit more up on it because it's just, it's a bit far for an early mm-hmm. medieval historian. <laughs> I know something about it, but yeah, no, I think, I think Martin does play with this a little bit. I think that there's supposed to be some, some sort of clan of green men who guard the God's eye or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think he's, he's, they may have antlers or something. I, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, I, I would have to look it up, but um, yeah. So, but but you're saying that this might have influenced, uh, you know, the mythology around the Green Knight as well. Yes. Yeah. No. The Green Knight is is related to the Green Men. Um, that's that's fascinating stuff. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this practice of the Lord, the Lord refusing the meals, like like Bran eats his fill. And then every meal that comes into the room, he kind of gets to decide where it goes. Yes. So he, he waves it off like, I'm full, but please send this to, you know, Lord uh, whatever. And mm-hmm. and I'm curious if this is sort of a common practice at great feasts or something like this. Yeah, I think it is a practice that we know existed. I I'm not sure I'd want to say that. I think it's common, um, but rather I'd say we know that feasting and eating together like this was really important throughout the whole of the Middle Ages. Okay. And it's especially important, I think, for a lord 
to do this, to have a big feast, feed a lot of people, and especially make sure that people he needs to keep as allies or keep close to him uh, receive something especially good, or that there's people he wants to reward in a certain way. And so in that sense, I would say maybe the exact mechanism, I'm not going to say is completely common or it's like a standard thing. I think it's one way a Lord could do that. Right. But we do know that it, it's a big deal when people um, eat and drink together. And I think ga- the Game of Thrones world does a good job of kind of showing this, that sharing food or sharing drink is a kind of creates a kind of bond, but it also establishes a hierarchy. And we get this in quite a few medieval sources. It matters so much where you sit. It really does. Yeah. And we see this in quite a few sources and we see this in this chapter, right? There's a discussion who is sitting where, and like, I know Brand is not pleased with where the phrase are sitting, but he knows that they have to do that. Like uh-huh. that he has to give them that honor, even though he doesn't really want to. And he remembers um, back to why Jon Snow can't sit with him and yes you know he's told no he's a bastard he has to sit somewhere else right yeah and i think that's a nice reference to bring up because there's that discussion of whether lady hornwood's husband's bastard can can inherit and everyone says well she won't like it (laughs) and i think it brings up this whole issue again of like reminds people okay in this world um bastard sons are very much like resented and Mm -hmm. you know and especially by the the lawful wife as they would say in this world. Um, so there's that, but like who can be there? Um, and I think it's also sort of telling that Bron sends, um, I think it's sweets to old Nan and um, mm-hmm. Odor, yeah. right? And yeah. it's he's just because he loves them, which I think is, it's really sweet, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, in a way you kind of think, well, is this something that he does because he's young, mm-hmm. right? Or is it like, that's okay. But I think like that could very easily happen. But um, we do know like from other sources that um, the feast was often a place where a Lord or King would reward followers who were good followers with um, gifts. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not always like a gift of food, like it is here, but it could be um, a gift of rings. That was very important. And like, we see that a lot in like old English literature. Um, It could be um, clothing fabric. Um, I've seen that quite a lot, especially like in Frankish sources, Uh, but it could be other kinds of items, right. Or a recognition of the person, maybe with a new title, these kinds of things can take place at feasts. We see these Mm -hmm. examples. Mm -hmm. So it's a place. I mean, I often think of the feast as a place where people are working out their status. They're either like establishing maybe a new status or they're vying for a higher status in their culture, or they're just kind of making sure to reestablish it. And I think this is a really like, um, important feature of, um, the medieval world. Cause it's a world where these personal relationships really matter to how the world functions. And so, you need to kind of reconfirm your personal relationships with other people to, to make sure that you maintain your own status. Hmm. And so there are kind of like ways in which you're supposed to do this. Um, so from Brand's perspective, he knows he's supposed to sort of send out certain kinds of food, but he, he can, he can do it a little bit his way. Um, but it, this really is an, an important aspect of kind of maintaining his followers, maintaining kind of the power of House Stark. But at the same time, the people there, they want that favor because their um, position could rise or fall depending on how much favor, say, the House mm-hmm. um, is showing to them. So I think these things are important. And I, there are people who've written some really, I think, excellent works about, you could say rituals, although some historians would say maybe rituals going too far, of how you 
behave in these situations. There's a nice book I like by um, a scholar named Jeffrey Koizel called Begging Pardon and Favor. And it's, I think, quite good about this, about how there are just ways you have to interact in order to maintain these bonds. Mm. Um, so that's a, just one example, but there's been studies of this throughout much of the Middle Ages. Uh, mm. it's, so it's an ongoing, ongoing matter, I would say. So the food's symbolic, I think, and I mean, clearly there's the ritual of eating at the Lord's table or eating from the Lord's table is symbolic of sort of the liege care, right? Yes. And so then the question to me, like, so was there certain meats or dishes that would be especially, I don't know, honorific? Like clearly, clearly so. the turnips and beets are not. <laughs> yes, no, right? not them. Well, and I think I was when I was like rereading this, I was thinking, like I was trying to remember like what they had available to them in the north. It's like a little hard to think about, and I'm not even sure necessarily if I went back in the books, I would be able to figure it out. But the dishes that are most exotic would probably be the most desirable. Interesting. So okay. dishes yeah. that involve something that comes from far away or right. something that is hard to get. Got it. Right. I think that is something interesting. I remember Lady Hornwood gets salmon and I was trying to think, is there something symbolic in the fact that she's given salmon? I'm not sure there is, but I would say that's maybe like that. That's a good example. If we're going to talk about something other than turnips to say, it seems kind of middling, middling, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I assume you can get plenty of salmon in the North. So this is a dish that people could get, but it's meat. And in at least in the Middle Ages, meat is a sign of status that you have access to it. And so uh, that may have also been something. So sending meat to people is a bigger deal, right, than getting like the vegetables or bread or something. Um, harder to get it. Um, fewer people may have access to it. But any dish that would involve a kind of like imported item would probably be the most prestigious, right? right. Because it's not something anyone just anyone can get. So the other thing that happens in this uh this chapter is that uh Bran has to like gulp down some kind of I don't know strong meat or something. Yes. And my guess is that, you know, this is kind of like, well, you know, children had alcoholic beverages at feasts, uh, in ways that maybe they wouldn't today. But there might be something symbolic about that. Like the Lord is drinking with his subjects. And so because yes. he's sitting in the Lord's chair, he's going to have to drink out of his father's cup. And that what's going, what's in that cup has to be this particular alcoholic beverage. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it feels like a reference to the Mead Hall, which was mm -hmm. in um, early medieval England was a, that was a big deal in those kingdoms. Um, and we definitely get references to this in literature, but it's this idea you get together and you drink and by drinking alcohol, you make yourself vulnerable. I mean, this is, I think, a, a bigger theory than just the middle ages, but when you drink with others, you're, you're in a way you're saying, I trust you. Right. And so it's a way of building trust that you're willing to drink something that would affect you. Uh -huh. um, and we do get cases um, from the middle ages where, it's clear that violence breaks out because people have been drinking. <laughs> uh -huh. So sometimes you'll get like churchmen who say things like, now, now, noblemen with your arms, you really ought not to drink so much that you start to like be violent. You know, you get in an argument if uh -huh. you've been drinking, something bad happens. I mean, it's kind of similarly to 
to today, right? Where sometimes people are under the influence of, you know, alcohol or drugs and they make very poor decisions. Oh, they're worried about the violence. It's going to happen. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's an old, old concern. And I think yeah, that's part of the whole drinking together. Um, uh-huh. But also this idea of sort of like raising a glass to others is an important sort of status recognition as well. Interesting. So one of the consequences of this is that so far, Bran has had wolf dreams when he's asleep. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we see that at the end of the chapter. But he, as far as we know, we've he's never experienced this while he's awake before. And this is the kind of the first time that he kind of... And it goes into something of a daydream where he, I think, slips into a, I don't know, wolf consciousness or something like that. And I think it's related to the alcohol. I think that somehow because he's not used to, you know, drinking that much strong drink, his guard is down in a way that he hasn't experienced or something. But whatever the case is. He seems to have a wolf daydream for the first time in this chapter. Yes. And I think that there's also something that's connected to the arrival of Jojen and Mira. Um, I think so, too. So I thought we'd maybe talk a little bit about their arrival, because I think that I think that they almost are guides to Bran in a way that no one in Winterfell is actually a guide. Yes, I would agree with that. Every night it's the same. I'm walking. I'm running. But... I'm not... I'm not me. I'm running through the godswood, sniffing the dirt, tasting blood in my mouth when I've made a fresh kill. Howling. Old Nan used to tell me stories about magical people who could live inside stags, birds, wolves. That's exactly what they are, Bran. Stories. So she was lying. They don't exist. Well, they may have done. But they're gone from the world. Along with much else. These are dreams, Bran. Nothing more. No. My dreams are different. Mine are true. I dreamt of my father dying. Andricon had the same dream. What about all the dreams you had that didn't come true? Um, they're very interested in the wolves. They they somehow Jojen knows about the can feel the wolf can feel that a particular wolf is stronger than the other wolf or something like that. And it, he really presents as almost uh, like almost a prophetic figure. In this chapter. Yes. I think that's quite purposeful. I think he knows what will happen to Bran. Oh, and he and also so- says, today's not, I'm not afraid of this wolf because today's not the day I die, suggesting that he, do- he does know. He knows. Yeah. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, I think he like, it's made clear right from the start that he can f- foresee what will happen. Uh-huh. He knows what's going to happen. He, he's like a kind of prophet or seer or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, Which might connect to the fact that he's not carrying a weapon. You know, it could be that in this, and yes. of course, this is an inference here. But you know, he's he's a holy man. He's not a warrior. Um, and Correct. In several different cultures in the ancient worlds, 
uh, th- those offices were often set in distinction. You know, if you were a holy man in a particular way, it would absolutely dictate the kind of weapon that you carry or you're not supposed to have any blood on your hands at all. Yes. And and that would have been also, I mean, the case in the medieval world. I mean, mm. priests were not well. OK, after a certain point, priests are not supposed to shed blood. Right. Um, so even if you look at kind of a Christian tradition, it's also there as well. But mm. we see this, as you said, many cultures where. Um, holy, holy practitioners, religious practitioners are, they're supposed to be different than everybody else. Right. right? And that's one way to show that they're different um, is that they're not supposed to engage in the same kinds of violence or the same kinds of actions as Uh other people. And I think, you know, each culture kind of has a different take on what those limitations should be, but there's usually a way to set apart to someone who is considered like a, a specialized religious practitioner like Jojen. And I think, yeah, that's definitely part of what's going on here. So this almost sets Mira off by contrast. I mean, in this chapter, we see various like performances of gender and, you know, we see, you know, we see dancing, we see, you know, we see, you know, a, a serving girl be thrown in the air during the dance. We see, uh, is it, is it Asha who gets groped? Yes. And then Brand notices, but then there was another woman and there was a, you know, someone with, oh, I think a Micken. Micken has his hand down her bodice, but she doesn't seem to mind. So he's kind of trying to puzzle out, like. I don't get what's appropriate and what's not, but mm-hmm. there's various women who are performing various roles in this room, and then there are various men performing various roles in this w- room, and I think and and they're all kind of choreographed in terms of gender. And then Mira walks in, and she does not look the part. I think she looks in in many ways a very a very stark contrast to the other women in the room. Yes, I, I would agree. And she also has way more agency, I think, than the mm-hmm. other woman in the room. Mm-hmm. She's definitely in charge of her own destiny in a way that the others probably are not or we, that we know are not, right? She's she's in charge. She's dressed differently. She's carrying a weapon. Uh, Brand notices that, you know, she's she's supposed to, she's almost a woman, but... Uh, she's very thin, you know, she's, uh, she does, she doesn't quite look like the other women of her age. Yeah. And she's, um, she also speaks well, Mm -hmm. right. And most of the other female characters in the chapter are pretty quiet. They don't talk a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting that she just speaks up and and in a way is like speaking for her own house. Uh Uh-huh. The fact that her brother's also there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So. All right, so notable introductions in this chapter. So, um, so of course, uh, Mira and Jojen show up for the first time. Um, and I noticed that the phrase um, ice and fire, you know, th- that exact phrase, ice and fire, mm-hmm. is spoken for the very first time in this book. And it's done on the lips of both children simultaneously, both Jojen and, and Mira. And it's the, at the end of their vow. So mm-hmm. I, it's, I can't, I mean, that can't just be a throwaway line. That has to have some kind of significance. Oh, it has to. Yeah. Um, give, given the, the title of the series, the, the, these two characters have some kind of, I don't know, larger 
major plot line significance, right? Yeah, I would think so. I think it's a throwback to how old their culture is and that their culture knows what is coming in a way like and uh, also that jojen is like the seer they know what's coming yeah. but it's like a reference i think to sort of like bigger prophecies would be my assumption mm-hmm. um or ways of thinking about the natural world or about the way the world will turn out um mm. so i think yeah like definitely the that vow is very it's quite striking <laughs> yeah yeah Notable, um, notable departures. Well, this entire chapter is a departure. Not another step, boy. Unless you want to drown in your own blood. I'm unarmed. That was part planning. My sister carries the weapon. I'm better with them. Drop the spear. Drop it. You must be summer. I'm Jojen Reed. This is my sister, Mira. We've come a long way to find you, Brandon. And we have much farther to go. Uh, Bran meets Jojen and Mira in the woods after he's escaped Winterfell. Um, he meets them, you know, he doesn't meet them in a, in a hall. Uh, you know, we do see Bran at, at a, you know, at a feast, but it not, none, none of this happens uh, in the show, so... Um, yeah. so, so that, so the show goes a much different direction mm-hmm. and, um, notable departures. I think that we, we see Lady Hornwood leave, uh, the feast and I don't know that we have her, I think we just hear tell of her from here on out. So I think she leaves I believe the, that's correct. the story. Um, and then of course we, we hear about her, uh, her tragic end in a later chapter. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Arya's clearly an interesting, for her age, she's something like of a strategic prodigy, if my interpretation is right. Is right. I don't think at this point John is very strategically minded. I think he needs someone like Sam to like connect the dots for him. Yeah. Like he's making you a steward for a reason, dummy. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I also think that I think that Sans is a little bit behind at this point, although we're you know, we're not quite seeing what's going on with her internally. Well, we have one of these kids, Bran, who might be dreaming symbolically about the future, but doesn't really know what to do with the information yet. Mm-hmm. Well, he's now just I mean he's really I mean he's got some some counsel, but I mean his family's left him, right? I mean he's Yeah. He's kind of created his own new little, uh, you know, it's a sort of misfit toy island here. <laughs> and then lowest on the list of strategically minded is Rickon, who he just wants to smash the hell out of walnuts. <laughs> oh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's his goal. 
suddenly there, there's a much more sinister character that shows up in, <laughs> in Winterfell. He just has it in for those nuts, he man. He hates food. <laughs> I mean, imagine. Imagine that kind of That's moral an compass. assault against nature itself. <laughs> moral compass be damned. It's just like, I don't like food anymore. <laughs> So at one point, Lewin says, you know, he's talking about all the dead cultures that are lost to the world. The dragons are dead. The children are forgotten and whatnot. And then he has this line. He says, even gods die. What did you make of that? that? Gods die. Um, Interesting that this is probably... Right after the last chapter, gods were mentioned as probably Craster calling the others gods. But then that seems like quite out of character for Lewin to be talking about. So I have a little theory, and I I think I came up with this theory. I'm not I'm not familiar with everything that's been written on the internet, but but this is something that I came up with. Um, I'm probably just echoing something that someone else has said uh, much better than I. But here's my theory. I think that the old gods are green seers from the past who've taken their second life within weirwood trees. That's that's my theory. So we've learned in the most recent books that wargs can take a second life, Right. Once you die, you can you can work right into an animal, and um, then you could live, the you know throughout the rest of your days as that animal, and then of course that animal is going to die, eventually. We've also we also know that a very very talented warg can work not necessarily into an animal, but into the weirwood tree network. And this is a green seer. And I think, I mean, and this is sort of a detail that's in World of Ice and Fire, is that a weirwood tree, if it's not cut down or burnt, will live forever. And that effectively, okay. if you were, let's say you take your second life in the weirwood tree network, that would, I guess that would turn you into a god in, in a sense. Yeah, it's a tr- it's a confusing one, and it goes back to a little bit the problem of time because we know when Bran it gets into the weirwood network, he look he sees Ned praying in the godswood, and he tries to call him, and um, I think it ends. I don't know, maybe it's Leaf or someone says leave them, you know, leave them alone, leave <laughs> having the past. So I always thought it was more the gods were like people looking back in the past, like Green Seers looking in through the weirwood mm. net in the past and maybe whispering like Bran trying to call Ned. Um, I never considered that you could warg into the Weirwood net after you die. I assumed it was something that like you kind of a green seer could connect to. Yeah. I guess that's the leap. I'm, I'm, I'm making that inference. Uh, You know, if a green seer, if a warg can, can warg into an Eagle and live out the rest of his second life as an Eagle, could a green seer warg into the weirwood network at that point i'm inferring that they can but uh that I sort of that, that's the limit to the logic i suppose <laughs>
Yeah, I feel, again, Lewin's line, I have it here again. So, like, stars fall from the sky, great cities sink beneath the sea, even the gods die, we think. Uh, coming from Lewin, to me, I just mean, like, well, the old gods, they're, like, pretty much gone, right? now. We've got... Or the, what are the gods, according to the first one, the gods are the trees themselves, right? So Yeah, or the children. If you cut down the tree, you've killed the god. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the maester is really... Well, I suppose one of the things about A Song of Ice and Fire is that, like, gods don't really exist in the traditional sense, or at least in the sort of classical Greek, uh, you know, god of thunder, god of lightning sense. So, like, Roller, however you pronounce it, definitely has powers, right? But we don't know he's a god. Roller, yeah. I Uh, feel like the gods in the story are kind of like, you know, Norse gods, or, you know, like, like... you know the the others are called gods, and I think yeah. in, in the same way, you know the the dragons are magical creatures that live for a very very long time. Um, yeah. I mean they're they're godlike in that way. I think all the gods in the story are actually characters in the story. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a sort of power that's not understood. Yes. So it's and it's sometimes it's associated with the sentient being. I think that the trouble. I think with the trouble with this is that you know, sort of coming at this as a Western perspective, the default position for God is transcendent. But I think that's the wrong way to yeah. read this story. Indeed, yeah. And again, from having a little bit of knowledge of Irish mythology, in Irish mythology, the gods often get killed. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course. Now, so of course, the other thing about Maester Lewin is he's clearly studied in the, you know he can tell yeah. you all about the children of the forest he just doesn't know how much of it is mythology and how much of it's not so he is in some ways an unreliable narrator but you know when he says you know we even think the gods die i don't think he's talking about the the seven i think he's i think he's talking about something else yeah i i think he's i do think he's thinking about something else um I don't know what his view on the seven is. Where he actually do maesters? They're not that related to the septons, are they? They're not. But I would so, imagine um, that this world. I think it would be very rare to find someone who's not connected to some kind of faith yeah. in this setting. Although we do, yeah, you know, it seems like we do meet a lot of agnostics in this story. It's true. It's probably a surprising amount for the world it's set in. Um, I think Lewin probably, I would imagine he's considering the old gods there. He's not northern. And I think uh, a lot of non-northern people think the old gods are dead. They're still, you know, worshipped in the north, mm-hmm. and that's their culture. But uh, I don't think he believes that they're still alive. And I guess another way to read this is that Lewin believes in the gods in the same way he believes in giants and snarks and grumpkins, you know. <laughs> Well, I, I suppose the difference is he believes he mentions giants as well, doesn't he? As something that are gone, so he believes they existed in the same way he believes dragons mm-hmm. existed and they're all dead. Whereas I think snarks and grumpkins are more like, um, you know, fairy tale. So, if, all right, yes. So we have a spectrum, <laughs> you know, where, you know, the dragons are, you know, a historical species. Snarks and grumpkins are. Our mythology, where would gods fall on this spectrum? Somewhere in between. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I'd love if he drew a diagram sometime. It's like, you know, dragon, real, like giant. I would love, real, <laughs> I'd love him to say, yes, snarks, 
no grumpkins. <laughs> Clearly snarks existed. Grumpkins are a figment a figment of man's imagination.